0: Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit with a new episode. It's August 29th, and this is a good episode, and I don't usually say that before I've even begun to talk because who knows how it's going to turn out, but for some reason, I feel like this is going to be a good one, and it's largely because I had a listener who wrote to me and reminded me of a very little-known mafia story of which I was a part of from 15 years ago, 16 years ago now, and I'm not sure how this listener remembered it, because I certainly hadn't, and I probably never would have brought it up during uh, any of these podcasts, but it's a pretty cool, bizarro story, and I think it's really telling when you see how the government acted in 2005, 2006. And you look at the way the country is now, and it it makes some sense, and nothing's really changed all that much. But what's uh, the biggest thing in the news, and we're going to get to it, but it's really a fascinating mob story. If you're into mafia stories from the insiders, this is uh, one for the books. But I want to start out first and talk about, I suppose, the the most obvious elephant in the room of late is the entire student loan forgiveness. And we're going to talk about student loan forgiveness and also a little bit about the uh, Mar-a-Lago search warrant affidavit, which was released, although it was so heavily redacted, it really doesn't make a difference. Uh, the parts that were actually released are almost meaningless. But let's start with the student loan forgiveness. This is a, a, an issue that's important to me, although probably not for the reasons that everybody else is so cranky about. The whole 10000 Now it's been r- revealed to be a $10,000 student loan forgiveness. It pisses people off so much only because they paid for school themselves without any help. Those are the people that are usually pissed. So it, it, it personally rankles people. It touches such a nerve because Everybody who's complaining previously had to suffer from taking out these loans, which you do with your eyes open, and you paid them off over years and you were miserable about it. And now the people are feeling that, you know, this current generation isn't suffering the way they did. And I think that's just, you're looking at it in a very surfacy way. But at least on the surface, the annoying part of it, really, if you just look at it objectively, this is just $10,000 we're talking about it's just ten grand. Most of the people that have student loans have way more than $10,000 in loans that are outstanding. You it, know, be more pissed off. I guess my point is this is nothing. It's a minor number. Be more pissed off about other things that are occurring around you, uh, such as the hundreds of dollars extra each month that you're paying due to inflation, right? You'll be paying way more than just ten grand for increased prices on household items over the next year or so. Be pissed about the falling stock market since uh, the new administration has been in place. That's cost you way more than ten thousand dollars. So uh, for that reason, I suppose, all these reasons, giving these people that owe the money, the student loans, ten thousand dollars, it's not really worth it on its face. getting pissed off it's not worth it you want to be pissed be pissed for the right reasons and there are many of them first the loan forgiveness is solely being done as a grab for votes that's why it was held back until the end of august just a couple of months before midterms that are so important that's the reason why it was done It, it focuses on young people who have these outstanding loans Because Biden has lost so much support from young people, and and he's lost the support because he sucks, and young people somehow figured it out. I'm shocked, frankly. But it's white kids anyway that are being benefited by the $10,000 loan forgiveness if you make $125,000 or less. It's mostly white kids, and I'll tell you why. Do you know what the average household income is of people with student loans? It's $76,000. That's white kids. That's college grads. That's white kids. Because those are the people that are paying off these loans. They're all college grads. And for the most part, they're whites. Beneficiaries of student loan forgiveness have higher incomes, obviously, because they're college grads, are better educated, and more likely, as I said, to be white than beneficiaries of just about every other program designed to reduce hardship or to promote opportunity. And it's, you know, these programs are targeted to people that need the help, these other programs. And I'll give you an example why this is why it pisses me off so much about the student loan forgiveness. For example, food stamps, they serve households whose median income is about $19,000 a year, and half of them are in poverty. Does that sound like 76,000? And the food stamps provide about $2,300 annually for the average household. Medicaid households earn about $33,000 a year. About 34% are below the poverty line. Families that claim the earned income tax credit, that's the largest cash income support for working families, they earn about $36,500 a year. Their average annual benefit is about $2,200. Black families. All right? In contrast, the median income, as I said, for households with student loans is 76400 and just 7% are below the poverty line. Among those actually making the payments on the loans and who would have an immediate cash flow benefit from loan forgiveness, the median income is 86500 and just 4% are in poverty. These are the ones that are actually making payments on the loans. Those are white folks, all right? The cost of $10,000 in debt forgiveness is about as large as the country has spent on welfare since the year 2000 and exceeds the amount spent s- since then on feeding hungry school children in high poverty schools through the. Uh, the school breakfast and the lunch programs, the cost to taxpayers for this loan forgiveness on student loans may be as high as 980 billion, that's B, billion dollars. Why are we transferring so much wealth to these idiotic white kids who have college educations? That's my beef with this. The spending on the college loan forgiveness will dwarf spending on programs that actually help feed low-income pregnant women and infants or provide energy assistance to those who otherwise struggle to heat their homes in the winter. Why are we giving this to dopey white kids? Why aren't we helping the poor people that can't heat their homes more? It doesn't make any sense. We're helping young, educated white people. Oh, why are we doing it? Because they're Democrats. And Biden needs their votes right before midterms in November. Forget the poor blacks who can't eat, can't heat their homes. Let's help some women's studies uh, wokester who wants more Chipotle while living under mommy and daddy's roof. Let's help them out. Why? That's the shit that bothers me. And here's another reason to be pissed off about all this. With all the money we're spending on this, the, the colleges are turning out garbage graduates who can't be responsible enough to actually pay off the loans that they take out. And part of it's because they're not either majoring in in appropriate majors or the colleges are just garbage. I mean, who knew that majoring in women's studies can't get you a job other than at, at McDonald's? Maybe take a major that will help you add something of value to the world. Make the colleges pay for this. Now, this is crazy what I'm going to tell you. So sit down. If you're, not, if you're standing up listening to this, take a seat and listen. The kids that are taking out these loans, they can't pay them off because they graduate with nothing of value. Harvard has an endowment. Okay, that's the money that's in their bank account that they get from uh, uh, people, their grads, their alums. Just donations. $42 billion. $42 billion. But let's forget Harvard for a second, because that's obviously, they're skewered. Let's take the 30th highest endowment of any university in America. The number is over $2.3 billion, and that's the University of Rochester, which is a decent school in in, uh, upstate New York. Let's say of the $2.3 billion, uh, Rochester makes 4% in either interest or um, investment gains each year from investing their endowment. That's $92 million each year in just interest, in interest. Divide that $92 million by the 1,600 freshmen that they enroll every year. Just a freshman, one class. That's $57,500 for each freshman. The tuition at University of Rochester, $58,000. That means that Rochester could give every freshman free tuition this year, every single one of them, without dipping into a penny of their endowment. That's just from the interest and in proceeds of uh, of investments. Let's compare now to Harvard, because Harvard's number one. Four percent in an investment return from their forty-two billion dollar endowment, divided by the number of total undergrads, not just the freshmen. Everybody that goes to Harvard undergrad, that equals out just the interest, just 4% on their endowment equals out to over $320,000 per undergraduate at Harvard without touching the $42 billion. That means they could give every undergrad at Harvard $320,000, all the kids that are there now. Why the hell should they even make kids pay tuition at all? It's a scam, and they're giving them crap. The colleges, uh, the colleges are turning out kids who are, are brainwashed to become social justice warriors so that they'll continue to vote Democratic. But they don't leave school with any kind of real skill to get a good-paying job. And to ensure that the kids uh, with these idiotic wokester majors continue to become leeches on society... Uh, These, you know, they're basically become irresponsible leftist zeros who care about yoga and and potions and elixirs and (laughs) Instead of actually doing something of value for our country, we should then forgive the loans that they took out? Let's make them even less responsible, okay? Don't the colleges bear any of the consequences of ripping all these kids off in the brainwashing? Making them go into debt for decades, turning them into squids? These schools insist upon making the kids take classes about racism and social justice. Those are required courses now. Then let them foot the cost of tuition. Because being a good social justice zombie, it just doesn't pay the rent. It just doesn't. And it's symptomatic of what many uh, think of today's youth and why people are pissed off. Young people are often lazy, and I know, I'm older now, so I'm I'm like one of those get off my grass type of people. Young people are uh, so many times lazy, useless, unable to achieve without having shit handed to them nowadays. That's what really pisses most people off about the student loan forgiveness. It's not enough that you, you don't have to take the SATs to get into college anymore. They stopped making the, this is, I've talked about this before, but it just, it just makes me bonkers. They stopped making the SATs and the, the ACTs mandatory due to COVID during COVID because of the inability to get into a testing center that wasn't shut down during the virus. And it's true. I had it with my kids. You had to hold your breath the night before the SAT, if they weren't going to shut down your testing center and they, they shut down so many. So I understand why during that period, the SATs and the ACTs were uh, not mandatory. They were voluntary. But now, guess what? They never went back. They're still just voluntary. And the reason they're giving now is the real reason they did it in the first place, because minorities don't do well on these standardized tests. So we want to be able to get them into our elite universities and not be hamstrung by their shitty standardized test results. That's what often happens. Now, listen, there's all sorts of reason that minorities have low standardized test scores. If you want to go to their environment, uh, you want to go to their socioeconomic status, they don't have a lot of the advantages that the white suburban kids have. They're not uh, having mommy and daddy paying for uh, SAT tutors out the ass. So there's a reason why they're doing lower, but they are still doing lower regardless. And what we want to do is we want to make sure that the colleges can take these kids in without harming their test averages we want to take in as many social justice advocates with low scores we can but we don't want the average sat at these elite schools to plummet so much because then we'll no longer be deemed elite because if you have lower sats and you look at these great schools you're going to say they're not so great so we'll just eliminate the shitty scores from the average let the shitty score students in, and no one knows that these top schools, they'll think that everybody's smart because the average SAT is so high. It's only high because of all the half the kids they let in have no SATs. They would have been horrible had they taken the SAT and they'd be factored into the average of the school. It's crazy. So, you know, anyway. We end up these great schools, graduate people who don't belong there because they're really not smart enough to be there. They're not, they haven't achieved enough to be there. And then we pass them off as competent professionals in society when they graduate. Like this won't have any impact on our society in a decade or two that we're taking kids that don't belong and we're churning them out with degrees from these great schools and we're pretending everything is the same. What we're doing is we're just keep giving people stuff that they don't deserve. Let's keep pretending people are achieving stuff when the only reason they're getting it is due to the the color of their skin or how much social justice activism they had in high school. It was wrong when white people got the privilege, and it's just as wrong when it's the opposite. It's reparations. And to young people in college who listen to the podcast, and there are plenty because I get emails, I'll say it again. You're in college now. Crush your studies, crush your competition. Don't go to college to examine your navel and be brainwashed by useless leftist professors who can't make it in the real world. Why do you think they're teaching in college for the most part? Become something, create something of value in college. Don't concern yourself with breathing and dancing in your kitchen because we'll be laughing at you if you do. Be one of the cool kids. Kick the shit out of the opportunities that you have. We all wish we were back in school with you. Believe me. I wish I was. As will you decades from now. Don't waste a day there. Look around you. You see that you belong. Kick the crap out of it. If you got in there because you didn't have to put SATs in and you snuck in, well, here's your opportunity to prove people like me wrong do well, work hard, and you can have anything in America. That's what's so great about it. It's the best country for that reason. Now, as an aside, and this is such a frolic, this is such a distraction, don't believe the garbage that the Democrats are saying that anyone that, uh, who took out a PPP loan, uh, knowing that it would be forgiven, is in no position criticizing kids who were taking out college loans with their eyes wide open and not paying them back and getting the, the free money now. The PPP loans were for specific reason. The government had shut down the country, making it very difficult, if not impossible, to run your business. The PPP loans were given to business owners to help them keep their businesses running. And in exchange for forgivable loans, you had to promise not to fire anyone who worked for you during the next few months. And then if you did all that, you could keep the money. If you fired someone, meaning you stopped paying them their salary, you had to pay the loan back. So we were simply doing, so I'm a business owner, we were simply doing something for the government when we agreed to take the loans. Our businesses had been hurt, as I said, uh, because of what the government did by shutting us down. They required us, to, or asked us to take the loans, but they said, keep people working and we'll let you keep the money. Had they not shut everything down, people wouldn't have had to take out the PPP loans. Is that really the same as a a student going to college and taking out a loan to pay for it, knowing full well that he or she has to pay it back, but now doesn't have to? Of course it isn't. As I said, had I been told when the PPP loans were handed out that I had to pay it back, I never would have taken it out. I didn't need it. I could have kept my business afloat without the loan. And I still wouldn't have laid anybody off during the pandemic. I would have suffered. In fact, I did suffer because getting a, a, a piddly PPP loan was a fraction of the money that I lost having a law firm basically shut down for months. I kept paying the salaries uh, when our office, we weren't even allowed to go into the office. I was paying full health insurance during the time period, every dollar of it. Nobody was contributing. Even when, as I said, when we weren't even allowed to go into the office, but I took what the government gave me due to their actions harming my business. Don't compare for a second a student who graduates from college, um, graduates, graduates with a college degree, gets a job, and then doesn't want to pay his or her loans back. When I graduated law school, I had no money and was making $500 a week. No one gave me a damn thing. That's the truth. $500 a week is my first law job. That's why people who succeeded in life without handouts, are pissed about this whole uh, $10,000 college loan forgiveness. And it's typical, the government acting as parents to their citizens, mommy and daddy. I'll give you exhibit $87 It comes in the form of a revelation this week from Mark Zuckerberg, that he's the head of Facebook. He said that the FBI warned him just before the 2020 election that the Russians were about to drop some major disinformation and that Facebook should be on high alert, meaning to suppress it. Naturally, when the Hunter Biden laptop story came out days later, Facebook and Twitter then suppressed it. The FBI told Zuckerberg, and he quoted them, quote, we thought that there was a lot of Russian propaganda in the 2016 election. We have on notice that basically there's about to be some kind of dump that's similar to that. So just be vigilant. And of course, that was the Hunter Biden story that occurred just days later. Americans are apparently not allowed to hear the truth about one of their presidential candidates because he was a Democrat. And we can't let Democrats be exposed for what they are. I mean, this was an unholy cabal to prevent Trump from being reelected. You can hate him all you want, and I can't stand him, but you don't do this. You don't do this. The voters are allowed to make up their mind without the purportedly objective news media, lying to them. It's some sick shit, isn't it? It really is. The FBI did all they could to ensure that the the Hunter Biden laptop story got suppressed before the election, and suppressing it on social media is a big way to do it. And that wasn't even enough. So 51 former U.S. intelligence officials, led by uh, former Director of National Intelligence James Clapper and ex-CIA Directors Mike Hayden, Leon Panetta, John Brennan, they signed an open letter that said the situation, the Hunter Biden laptop story, uh, quote, has all the classic earmarks of a Russian information operation. Except it wasn't. The laptop was real. You never heard Joe Biden or Hunter Biden say that it was fake. And a coordinated effort was made, as I said, to ensure that Trump lost to Biden. So why suppress it? Was it that important? Why have 51 former U.S. intelligence officers lie to the American public about it? Well, on the laptop that Hunter Biden had just abandoned, he, he left it at, uh, at at some repair shop and never picked it up because he's a crackhead. There was an email showing that Hunter introduced his father now President Biden, to one of the controversial overseas business associates that he had. And this proved that Joe Biden lied when he publicly stated, quote, I have never spoken to my son about his overseas business dealings. That was just a flat out lie. And, and these weren't innocent business dealings as, you know, as presumably there's a criminal investigation over now into possible tax fraud and potential wrongdoing by Hunter Biden based on material inside the laptop. So don't you think that Americans had the right to know about this? And I'm not even talking about other stuff that was on the laptop, which included proof, pictures, videos, text, et cetera, that revealed that Hunter Biden was a, a sex addict, crackhead, doing drugs all the time, having sex with his dead brother's wife, which we knew about. We didn't know about it at the time that he was also having sex with her 14-year-old daughter, his niece, and her friends. I don't know. Maybe that's the kind of thing you'd want to know about your presidential candidate, that his kid is a crackhead sex addict who's banging his dead brother's wife and daughter underage crime. I think that's important. Who are these people, these self-appointed morality police, the heads of America to decide that we need to be lied to? But this is the new America. We have to be told what to do, what to think. We can't do it for ourselves, apparently. We can't be expected to work hard to get into colleges. We, you No, know, we're just going to give it to you. We can't be expected to pay our loans off. We're all just too stupid to be left to our own devices, apparently. Well, let me, let me change. Now I'm all heated up. I'm all heated up now. I got to calm down. I got to breathe. <laughs> to breathe. Okay, I'm going to talk about the Vinnie Gorgeous story. This is a story heretofore never heard. You're going to hear it now. You, dedicated listeners, all of you, even the ones dancing in your kitchen with cowboy hats on. Really, you're going to hear this. This is for you. When I was representing John Gotti Jr. in early 2005, his trial was Months later, in August of 2005, I was hired by a mobster uh, named Dominic Sicalli. He was a capo in the Bonanno family on, on all sorts of mafia-related federal charges, including murder. Um, Sicalli, and the, he was uh, the capo, as I said, and the boss of the family, Vinny Gorgias Bassiano, were indicted a few months after John Jr. had been indicted. So I was involved at the time in the two biggest mafia cases— in existence at the time, the sicali Vinnie Gorgeous case was also a death eligible case, meaning the government could seek the death penalty against my client, Vinnie Gorgeous. And by the way, the reason he was, uh, his nickname was Vinnie Gorgeous, was because he had a hair salon in the Bronx, I believe, called Hey Gorgeous. Funny. Uh, what was especially enjoyable? I'm, I'm thinking back, and it's hard. This happened in 2000. And and five so this is 17 and a half years ago and the memories aren't all there but they start flooding back when you start to think about it what was especially enjoyable for me at the time was that one of the few lawyers in new york who i really respect and enjoy working with a fellow named barry levin was representing vinnie Gorges on that case and he also was representing one of the Gotti jr co-defendants in the other trial it was joey d'angelo So we felt that there was a high probability that we'd have two trials together, and that would be great. I mean, you don't get that opportunity to oftentimes work with people that you really like. For the most part, you're working with buffoons. Of course, that didn't work out at all because Joey D'Angelo flipped just weeks before the Gotti trial was set to start, so Barry was replaced and he wasn't on the case anymore. And as for the other case where I represented Dominic Sicali, here's the story, a wild story that I had forgotten. But as I said, I was reminded by a podcast listener. And I think this might have been a one-day story in the news. I don't know why it wasn't. It should have been more. I met Dom in the shoe. That's the special housing unit inside Brooklyn's federal prison, the MDC. Um, I was hired by his family. And this is the area where they put the worst prisoners, the most dangerous, the ones that uh, need to be separated from the rest due to issues relating to obstruction of justice oftentimes. I mean they have to separate them from the other prisoners. Can you imagine being so bad that you can't be around other prisoners who are arguably very bad as well. Now, Vinnie Gorgias, Bassiano and Sicali were both in the in the shoe. Vinnie was in the MCC in Manhattan in the shoe. And Dom, as I said, was in the MDCs, uh, uh, the Brooklyn MDC, in the shoe. Now, as a lawyer, when you go see an inmate in the shoe, they lock you into a room in Brooklyn. Uh, It's actually where I'm going Monday today to visit somebody. Anyway, they they lock you in a room. It's not like a regular attorney-client visit where you're out in the open and the door is open and you don't feel claustrophobic. They bring you into a room and the only way the guards can even, and they lock you in, as I said, the only way the guards can even see you in there is by a video monitor that's picked up, picks up from the camera in the room. And the, the, the guards are, are many feet away. They can't see into the room as whatever you're doing at the time. So you're basically locked in a room where if an inmate wants to kill you, he can do so in 15 seconds and they won't find your body for an hour and that's just what it is. And the prison guards are either, you know, it's not like they're carefully monitoring the cameras. They're either eating breakfast, ordering breakfast, asleep uh, at their desks, dreaming about breakfast, or of course, the other popular thing in the MDC is forcing a female inmate to give them sex. That seems to be all the various skills and actions uh, done by the MDC guards from what I can tell. And I've been going there, I think, since 1993. Now, it's a scary place to be as a defense lawyer, I suppose, and Dominic Sicali, when I met him, was in there charged with murder. Now, while I was going to be his lawyer, you never know what the guy is capable of that you're in there with. You just don't know. So it can be a little bit stressful. It just is. It's different when you meet somebody, as I said, where you have the opportunity to run if need be. But Dom was polite enough and he was simply sick and tired of being in the shoe. And I I couldn't blame him because I was sick and tired and I'd been there for a half an hour. It's complete isolation. You have no contact with other inmates and they can begin to start losing their minds there, as I saw from Chapo Guzman, who's, who's been in isolation for years. So he wanted me to get him out of it if I could. And they had had him in there completely also isolated from his co-defendants. He had a bunch of co-defendants on the case. They didn't even want him to be able to meet with the co-defendants for meetings. They didn't want he and Vinnie Gorges to ever meet at all. Too dangerous, apparently. Now, I began working on the case. I got to the discovery. I listened to the tapes. I was getting very into it. And at the same time, I worked on a letter to get Dom out of the shoe. The one thing I felt we had going for us, and this is really a, a key to winning any federal case, the one thing I felt we had going for us was that the prosecutor in the case was probably the lamest federal prosecutor I ever have dealt with in 30 years of practice. I've talked about him before. This was the prosecutor who thought, same guy, who thought it was a good idea to wire up a client of mine and have him tape me during the Gotti trial inside the bathroom of the courthouse, which occurred, you know, this was, I met Dom in, I guess, March, April of 2005. Uh, by August of 2005, this prosecutor, a fellow named Tom Siegel, was wiring up Lewis Kasman, a client of mine, to try to entrap me in a crime, which, of course, failed. And not surprisingly, Tom Siegel is no longer a practicing lawyer. He was simply too dumb, too weird, too ugly, and didn't have any common sense on top of it. He just He just wasn't fit for the job. So his reasoning uh, to keep Sikali in the shoe and out of general population was to prevent them, uh, he and, and Vinnie Gorges, from corrupting prison employees also, not just inmates, prison employees too, which is a dopey reason because they're, most of them or many of them are corrupt anyway, the uh, uh, the prison workers. But in order to have any chance of winning any mafia-related federal case, because juries are so... Usually prejudiced against mafia defendants, you really need to have a guy like Tom Siegel as your prosecutor because he just couldn't control himself from lying and making the dumbest arguments. And it gave you the room to possibly win a case or, in this matter, an argument as to where Dom Sicali would be placed inside the MDC. And here's some of uh, Tom Siegel's whoppers. And I actually dug this stuff up and and read it some of the whoppers that he presented to the court. He claimed that Sikali was given access to his discovery materials inside the shoe. And in fact, it would take like a week after he made a written request to even have them delivered to the shoe and he had a certain amount of time with them. And because one of the reasons you want to get him out is he doesn't have the opportunity to work on his case. Siegel also claimed that Sikali had no problem making phone calls or having personal visits when he was housed in the Shoe. In reality, Sikali was permitted to make his first phone call on his 78th day of incarceration. Despite requests to make phone calls to his mother, his father, his grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins, and his fiance, only the mother of his daughter, who he, I think he hated, uh, had been approved to receive phone calls from him. That was it. As for personal visits, Sikali was uh, required to complete a request form for visitors on January 28, 2005. His first visit was permitted 69 days later on April 7th. Despite requests to receive visits from his relatives, including his mother and father, the only person cleared for visits was, again, the mother of his young daughter. And then I caught Siegel, and it's just a significant lie in front of the judge. And we had a, a very fair judge, in my mind, um, was Judge Garifus in the in the Eastern District of New York. Siegel claimed that it was the MDC officials and not the government, not him, who had prevented Sakali's fiance from being permitted to visit him in the prison. I mean, let the guy's pregnant fiance visit him. But on March one two thousand and five. Siegel told the judge that the MDC had made the decision to keep the fiancé out. On March 30th, he told the judge that it was the government's decision. He clearly forgot his first lie. And this is the sort of thing that's typical uh, with certain types of prosecutors. They're so desperate to win that they'll just lie to a judge and they'll get caught or make requests for things that are so unfairly restrictive that the judges just see right through them and knock down any reasonable requests they make as well. They sort of throw in the baby with the bathwater. But that was Tom Siegel. That was like the story of his life. He just was too uptight about every last possible thing. So naturally, we had oral arguments on the issues of Dom's placement in the shoe, and I won, and Dom was put into general population. At that point, Dom loved me because he felt that I had really saved him from losing his mind in the shoe. And he was very excited to have me represent him at trial. And I was a good lawyer. I still am. And it wasn't like I hadn't done mafia cases. I was about to do John Jr.'s case and win, except there was only one problem with the case. I hadn't been paid the full fee that was promised to me up to that point. And while I've got some patience with clients who can't pay on time, I don't have much when it comes uh, regarding a, a case that I'd worked my ass off for a long time now. And Dom told me that he didn't have any money and that I needed to speak with <clears throat> his boss, Vinny Bassiano, about it. And this pissed me off because, you know, it wasn't Vinny that had hired me. It was Dom. But nevertheless, I was going to go see Vinny to talk about it. And it was a, at a co-defendant meeting when I'd see him next. I obviously wasn't going to speak about it in front of anyone else there, but I'd have a chance to pull him aside to discuss it. Well, it didn't really happen that way as I was shocked to find out when I was in this large attorney conference room inside the MDC, during the co-defendant meeting, Vinny asked me about it in front of the other defendants, right in front of them, and their lawyers as well. And there was like 20 people in that room. And he asked me to accept the lower fee. <laughs> and I refused. There's like no way. And I was pissed. I was pissed at this point. Like it was some kind of honor to work on the case for half the fee that I had agreed on. There's no way I'd rather not be in the case. And I told him that in front of the other defendants that I was quitting later. I'm out of here. And I think he was shocked. And I think Dom was shocked. Like it was again, like an honor to be representing a capo in the Bonanno family on a, a federal murder case. No, I didn't need the practice anymore. As I learned, as everybody learned a few months later with Gotti Jr. I need to get paid because I'm working too hard to get paid half. And as I said, he was incredulous and I was incredulous that Vinnie Gorgeous was incredulous. As I said, he felt that I should take the financial hit, take a lesser fee. And I refused right there in front of everyone, which might not have been the smartest move in retrospect, as it probably was embarrassing for him. So then he tells me to, oh, fine, you're quitting. Then return the entire fee that I had received. He wanted all the money back, ignoring all the work that I had done for a few months at this point, which included getting Dom out of the shoe. I was a little pissed that Dom didn't open up his mouth and stick up for me because I really had saved him by getting him out. And when Vinny asked me to give the entire fee back, I laughed in his face. I literally actually laughed. Like, are you kidding? I'm not giving you back all the fee. Now, I get again that this was the purported boss of the Banano crime family. But I felt comfortable enough in my history in mob cases. You know, I had represented John Gotti Jr. at that point, and I had also represented his father back in 1993, his trusted right-hand, Frank Lacassio, wrote part of his appeal. I had had mob cases throughout. So I, I felt, I suppose, my history in mob cases, my current representation, as I said, of John Jr., to think that I wouldn't have any problems there in that room in prison, I felt that I had earned enough respect that if I wanted to laugh in the guy's face, I was laughing in his face. And I, I didn't care. I know that it was probably a mistake. I didn't. I, look, I would do the same thing now. I'm not going to lie. But there was no way I felt that I was going to be humiliated in front of, of Vinny and all the other guys there, uh, all the wise guys there, by saying, okay, I'll give you all the money. Fuck you. There was just there was no, I couldn't do it. It would have been the end of me as a lawyer. It would have been the end of me as a man. And it just never even crossed my mind. At that point, Vinnie Gorgeous looks at me right in the face and says, I know you'll do the right thing with a smirk. And I responded, and I remember this like it was yesterday. I looked right in his face. I was three inches from his face. And I said, Dom will get back whatever I didn't use based on the hours I've worked so far. And he looked at me, as I said, with a smirk, like, yeah. And I smirked right back at him. He did not threaten me. He did not threaten me. He made a very strong suggestion that I suppose I could have taken as a threat, but he never threatened me. And I didn't, you know, he could have. Uh, It was a room that was not wired up. Nobody was watching what was going on in there. He could have threatened me. He stopped short and he did not. Now, this is the interesting part. I don't know the reason why, but the lawyer who replaced me for Dom, for Dom Sicali, was in that attorney meeting room with all of us when I had this run-in with Vinnie Gorges. Maybe he was our our death penalty expert that you get assigned uh, everybody on a death penalty case. They give you an extra lawyer who just handles the death segment of the case. I don't remember. Um, but he was in the meeting room when I had this run-in with Vinnie Gorges, And this was a lawyer who I had known since my first day as an attorney. He had rented space for Michael Kennedy, my first boss. Now, i had always liked this lawyer and always felt close to him. And I was just 25 when I met him. And I, I looked up to him, I, I suppose, a bit back then. I mean, he was Probably 15, 16 years older than me. So he was in his early 40s when I was 25. But now it's 15 years later and he couldn't shine my shoes as a lawyer. He was completely beneath me in the, in the food chain in terms of accomplishments in the law. In 15 years, I had overtaken him and lapped him three times. But I still treated him as if he was the older head. I always gave him the respect, and in my heart, I knew he didn't deserve any more. But that was how our relationship started, and I felt that's how it should continue. I didn't want to, you know, big time the guy. So I walked out of the MDC that day. I totaled up my hours, and I sent a check out to Dom's family. That was less than half of what Vinnie Gorgeous asked me to send back to Dom. This was in July of 2005. I started Gotti Jr.'s trial the following month. But I remember thinking as I walked out of the prison that day after my run in with Vinnie Gorges, that he was nuts, that this is how you make a guy a rat. You force him to lose the lawyer that he loved. And on a death penalty case of all things, this wasn't like a truck hijacking case. And naturally, that's exactly what happened. My old client, Dominic Sicalli, became a cooperator with the government against Vinnie Gorges. And I couldn't help but think what Vinny did to Dom that day, taking away the lawyer that he loved, it had to be a part of it, it had to be, because he had total faith in me, and now he's stuck with this, uh, you know, this broken down valise as his lawyer, who was cheaper, I guess. I forgot about the incident, all of this, you know, when this happened, because now I had, you know, the Gotti Jr. case, and I was on to other things, until April of 2006, nine months later, nine, ten months later, I get a shock. I get a call from a Newsday reporter, Tony DiStefano, to tell me that there was a superseding indictment against Vinnie Gorges. Now, again, remember, Dom had flipped by now. And in one of the charges, I was the victim. Tony read the racketeering act to me. I My jaw hit the ground. On June 23rd, 2005, the defendant... Vincent Bassiano did knowingly and intentionally attempt to steal property by extortion in that the defendant attempted to steal from John Doe No. 6, a criminal defense attorney whose identity is known to the grand jury, by instilling in John Doe No. 6 a fear that the defendant and others would cause physical injury to John Doe No. 6 in the future in violation of law, blah, blah, blah. Now, it's not until i'm I'm speaking this right now that I realize that Dom Sikali clearly perceived that as a threat, and he's a mobster killer. So if Dom Sikali thought that was a threat to give me a beating or kill me, you know, that's saying something. But to me, it, it never really went that far. I mean, if I don't perceive the threat, then how can it be a threat? And Tony de Stefano told me that his sources had told him that it was me and it was wasn't hard to figure out. And he was right. I told Tony that it didn't happen. And he published the, my denial and the story the next day. But after the call from Tony, I just flipped out and I immediately called the prosecutor up and it wasn't Tom Siegel. It was another prosecutor. I called it was not Tom. And I said, how the fuck could you bring a charge against Bassiano with me as the victim without even contacting me for an interview? I told them, you know, I could testify for the defense and say that the entire thing was a lie and that you never contacted me, that I didn't feel threatened because I hadn't been threatened. I said, you want me to hurt your case like that? I said, how incredibly irresponsible had to be a Tom Siegel thing, I just assumed, because nobody could have been that stupid to have done it, but Tom Siegel. The charge also made me look like I ran to the feds after that Incident in the MDC, and I gave evidence against Vinny, right? I mean, you'd think that if it's in the indictment, that obviously I was working with the government, but I hadn't. And it was clear, and that may be another reason why it was done to try to put me in jeopardy, you know, by the government. It was clear to me that the sole evidence, though, for the charge came from Dominic Sicali, because nobody else flipped in that room. My former client, who loved me, ran to the feds when he flipped and told them this, along with all the uh, other murder and mayhem that that Vinnie had done, supposedly and Sakali lied as I said, I never felt threatened if i had i wouldn't have give, I would have given back all the money that I suppose Vinnie asked for instead of less than half i didn 't feel threatened as I said, I gave back less than half, and the government had no interest. In even verifying for me whether Sakali's allegation was true, this is the federal government that was 2000 and what five six. Truth was a victim; it was a casualty then, just as it is now. They simply didn't care. And the next thing I did after yelling at the prosecutor was I called up Sakali's new lawyer, my old friend, and I went nuts on him. You were in the room; you know this didn't happen. He was also a witness. How could he be? An, he was a witness as a lawyer. Now, granted, Sakali wasn't in the trial anymore, but did this guy testify to it as well in the grand jury? Did he give that information to the government? I said to him, I was not threatened. Did I act threatened? Did I seem scared? Did I go right back in Vinnie Gorgeous's face? I did. I didn't, I wasn't scared. And my old friend didn't say a word. He just kept it, didn't say a word back to me because I was right. To me, it was the ultimate betrayal, and I never spoke to him again. If he's dead now, fine. I don't care. It was a minor count in the case. It was a racketeering act, number 13 or something, of many racketeering acts against Vinnie Gorge. just completely unnecessary to put it in there, but it still had the potential to be very harmful to me. Lawyers are notoriously jealous losers, and they hate other lawyers who are better than them, more successful than them. I mean, it's, it's a story of, of the world. One such pathetic lawyer, who I'm tempted to name, eventually I will, went around telling people in the MDC that I had cooperated against Vinny and was going to testify against them. And it's believable if you look to see that it's in the indictment with me as a victim. This guy knew it wasn't true, but he wanted to get me killed. This was a disgustingly fat, bald, untalented, imbecile of a lawyer who is in fact dead now. Good. He got shouted down in the MDC when he tried it by a client of mine who knew the truth. And that's how I found out that he was even telling people that. I called him up to yell at him. He wouldn't take the call. Typical. Coward. Pathetic. Dead. In the end, the the government ended up just dropping that racketeering act, which had me as the victim, because they knew it was going to come. I said to him, I said, I'll testify for Vinny that you're a bunch of fucking liars and that this is what the government does. You don't even investigate crimes. You just slap him into an indictment. But the experience, again, taught me what I already knew and know now is that you can't have blind faith in our government. It's too often run by petty, stupid, small people who have an ax to grind. And that probably was Tom Siegel, who, as I mentioned in another podcast, I embarrassed him in a case, myself and Jimmy LaRosa. And, you know, we laughed at him. We laughed at him. So this was uh, the nerd that we stuffed into the locker. This was his opportunity to get back at us. Now, another aside about this incident was that Dominic Sicalli got back in touch with me via letters from prison, told me how upset he was that I had to leave his case, um, which caused him to cooperate in part. And I wasn't representing him anymore. I didn't respond. I was shocked, frankly, uh, that he was writing to me. He wanted me to put him in touch with some famous rappers that I had represented. He wanted to rap. And I just was like, fuck this guy. I was honestly incredulous. He wanted me to represent him on other legal issues that he had as well. I don't believe I even responded. I was stunned at the tone deaf nature of the contact. Like he had forgotten the position that he had put me in. He ended up getting out of prison and sent me a bunch of texts and I still have them on my phone. The last ones were from June of 2021 and I never responded. I wasn't his lawyer. I had no obligation to him. I didn't want to help him. The guy fucked me in my mind. And people have all kinds of reasons to cooperate. And at this point in my career, I try not to pass judgment on those reasons. I just can't. So whatever Dom did, I can't begrudge him. And what happened by him losing his lawyer because of any Gorgeous was certainly deeply offensive. I can understand him being pissed. But to take it out partly on me, to throw me under the bus, you know, sorry, I'm out. Stay away from me. That's how I felt then. That's how I feel now okay, I got that story out of my system. And let me briefly talk about the search warrant um, for Mar-a-Lago. And this is, it's exhausting to talk about it again. The feds, uh, as crazy as they are sometimes, they they didn't want to make Trump a martyr, I don't think. Although having him run as the Republican nominee will certainly guarantee that the Democrats win the White House in 24, so who knows, maybe. Initially, I assumed that they simply could have worked out the issue that the Department of Justice had with Trump regarding the return of documents from Mar-a-Lago that, you know, they could have worked it out with the lawyers and didn't need to resort to a search of his home as if Trump was a drug lord hiding cash and drugs. But the redacted affidavit in support of the search warrant reveals, not surprisingly, it didn't reveal much because most of it was blacked out, but it revealed that Trump and his lawyers were not, in fact, working in a collegial, helpful manner with the DOJ in connection with the return of the classified documents that he possessed and didn't have secured properly. Trump made it sound like all the feds had to do was just ask for the documents back And they told him just to put another lock on the door and everything would be fine where he was keeping the records. Naturally, that was a lie. Trump lies. And we learned that. First of all, it took seven months in 2021 before Trump's team coughed up any documents that they had. Seven months. Trust me, the feds don't have that kind of patience for everybody. And many of the documents that were, in fact, returned were classified and he shouldn't have possessed. And the Department of Justice wrote in a letter to Trump's lawyer that, quote, there was no secure location authorized for the storage of classified information anywhere at his golf resort. And this is serious stuff. And this was all done secretly. This wasn't public. So they weren't looking to embarrass Trump. The material that Trump had could have contained names of people who, I don't know, were spies. It could have gotten them killed. And the materials are in an unsecure room at a golf resort where spies have been known uh, to be walking around the grounds. That's a fact. Spies have been there at Mar-a-Lago. Trump said it was a, a collegial exchange of communications between his lawyer and the DOJ. And that's just a lie. In May of 2022, Trump's lawyer, Evan uh, Corcoran, wrote a letter to the head of the counterintelligence section of the DOJ's National Security Division. In the letter, Corcoran argues that presidents have, quote, absolute authority to declassify documents and that, in any event, no president can be prosecuted for, quote, actions involving classified documents. Does that sound like a collegial working relationship? That they're working this out? Or does it sound contentious and aggressive? The affidavit in support of the search stated that the FBI's investigation into the documents kept at Mar-a-Lago led them to believe they had probable cause uh, that there was evidence of obstruction of justice will be found at Mar-a-Lago during the search. That does not sound collegial. Okay, and listen, they're concerned about Trump because every story out of the White House and he was getting debriefed on classified information as the guy was making stupid comments, not following clearly, leaking stuff publicly that he shouldn't have been. That happened on Twitter, of all things. The affidavit also revealed that of the 15 boxes that had been retrieved from Mar-a-Lago one year after Trump left office, this is before the search that there were materials that, he, you know, as I said, he voluntarily returned them. There were 14 of the 15 boxes contained information that had classified markings. In total, the affidavit said, and I'm reading from it, 184 such documents, 67 of which were marked as confidential, 92 of which were marked as secret, and 25 which were marked as top secret. Now, I don't think Trump should be prosecutor for this is he could be, because I think it'll make him a martyr, but I, and I think it'll divide the country further, and I think it's unnecessary, unless he was actually caught trying to harm America purposely, which I don't believe that's Trump. I just think that the harm that he's, he causes is due to his own stupidity and laziness and venality and arrogance and, and all sorts of personal flaws, but I don't think the guy's looking to sell us out to the Russians. But Do you think that maybe the guy shouldn't have classified top secret documents at a golf resort in a room which isn't secured? I mean, as I said, that could get people killed. And again, this bad press, this awful story just reminds everyone why Trump isn't in office anymore. He just exhausts the nation. He couldn't just return the documents. And I don't want to hear about Hillary Clinton You know, the press, the public, you know, it's none of that matters. Everybody, the press, the public, as I said, they judge Trump differently, and he has to know this by now. It's not helping Republicans, and isn't that all that matters? We're not here for a a pyrrhic victory, aha, we're right. We're right and you're wrong. No, it's not helping Republicans. Suddenly, there's talk that the Democrats can maintain advantages in both the House and the Senate in the midterms in a couple of months. Suddenly, Biden's poll numbers are slightly creeping up. You want to know why? All this, because now the focus is off the rampant inflation, the stock market plummeting, the supply chain issues continuing, the horrible Iran deal we're about to sign, which will give terrorists hundreds of billions of dollars, the millions of illegals flooding over our southern border, you know, with their crime and their disease. Now everyone is focusing on Trump and his idiocy. Once again and Biden is like he's like getting a free pass he's on vacation is that what you want or do you think that maybe it's time for Trump to take one for the team and back off and I don't know let an actually real smart and together guy Ron DeSantis take the lead in the Republican Party and fix America the way he fixed Florida instead we have Trump and and his convicted criminal lackeys trashing DeSantis in public and and ensuring that if Trump doesn't get the nomination for 2024, that we're going to end up having a President Kamala Harris or Biden, I suppose, if somehow he's still alive, which I doubt. And I'm not disparaging Trump completely because I think some of his policies were great, certainly better than anything we had with Biden. He did, he's responsible for the Abraham Accords, uh, uh, four enemies of Israel have now established ties with them and worked against Iran. I mean, that's a huge change in the Middle East that no other president could accomplish. Trump had criminal justice reform that no other president did. It completely helped black inmates. Obama didn't give a crap about it. Trump did. He gets no uh, credit for it, but he should. He also had some fine trade deals. I mean, Trump did some good things, but that's not the point. It's not helping pushing the ball forward now. We don't need a cult of personality in the White House. We need someone to fix This disastrous state that America's in right now. And I don't expect DeSantis to unite the country the way Biden promised to, which he didn't, and Trump obviously had no interest in doing. I expect DeSantis to clean house, fix our problems. And he was smart enough, DeSantis, to know who to hire and fire. Trump kept Chris Wray in at the FBI, completely screwed Trump. Fauci, he allowed to shut down the country, completely screwed Trump. He kept Jeff Sessions in his job, Rex Tillerson. He hired John Bolton. He hired that uh, that Omarosa, whatever, you know, from The Apprentice. Can you imagine? He hired Omarosa, and then she's like the bad person from The Apprentice. And then what did she do? She ended up stabbing Trump in the back. Who didn't see that coming? There's like a zillion people on the planet. You've got some peasant who's like picking rice in China right now, who's never been outside the block where he lives. Even he knew hiring Omarosa was a stupid mistake. And there's other stuff. There's other bad publicity, bad news from Trump. Just in the past 30 days, the country uh, saw his, his home getting searched besides that. And it was largely his fault. He asked for it by not returning documents. Just return them. We've also seen his longtime Trump company CFO plead guilty to tax fraud, grand larceny, and falsifying business records, becoming the latest person closer close to Trump to plead guilty or be convicted at a trial of a felony. Oh, and by the way, a big fanfare that he hired a fancy lawyer to represent him to come in at the last moment, the guy pleads him out, pleads him guilty, and now he's cooperating against Trump, and he'll testify in, uh, in a trial in October against the Trump Organization in a trial in, uh, in New York. The CFO was charged in 2021 with conspiring with his employer, the Trump Organization, to evade taxes by concealing his income through off-the-books benefits such as a luxury apartment, private school payments, tuition, the lease expenses for two Mercedes-Benzes. According to the Manhattan DA, the scheme-deprived federal, state, and New York City governments of taxes due on millions of dollars in non-cash income. You're given a gift like that, you got to pay taxes on it. You just can't pretend that it's not of monetary value. And this tax evasion scheme stretched for over 16 years from Trump's early seasons as host of The Apprentice through his entire time in the White House and into his first year as a former president. And as the DA explained, the scheme benefited benefited Trump's family business by allowing the Trump organization to avoid payroll taxes because they weren't paying regular income. So, you know, look, you also learn from the indictment that Donald Trump personally wrote the checks for private school tuition for the uh, CFO's relatives, and he drew it on his private bank account. That was a salary that wasn't declared. And as I said, it was all done to avoid paying taxes by Trump on this extra income. Now, again, I'm not saying it was right or wrong that the CFO was charged. I'm just saying because I I don't want to make value judgments. I'm sure it was done as a political reason why he was charged. It doesn't make it legal what he did. I'm just saying that this just provides another distraction, which helps Biden, helps the Democrats, and it hurts Republicans. And is that what you want? We've already been destroyed by Biden over the last, you know, we're coming on a couple of years now. Do we want more of this for years to come? I mean, how much more do you think the country can take? Do you think we're doing well? Or do you want someone clean and smart as your candidate who if he somehow, as I said, wins the White House, won't waste four years tweeting like a madman against the crazy Joe Scarborough and dopey Mika, his wife, MSNBC? Simply put, do you want to win? Or do you want to go down with the ship with a guy like Trump who didn't pardon a single January 6th criminal defendant? The people that rioted at the Capitol? They all came there that day because of Trump to support trump trump didn't pardon a single one of them instead he pardoned rappers and a democratic operative one who also was a pedophile good times right jeffrey lickman for beyond the legal limit you can hear me on spotify apple podcast beyondthelegallimit.com you can write to me and suggest topics to talk about as a listener did for this week thank you for listening be back next week